Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter-Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Tomas Morin. He is from Texas, and he's authored a couple of books of poetry, a memoir forthcoming from the U of Nebraska Press, and he translated The Heights of Machu Picchu by Pablo Neruda, which shows that he hangs out poetically with the good guys, for sure. And But we're going to be talking today about his latest book of poetry, just out from Knopf, called Machete. He teaches at Rice University and also up here in Vermont at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. So, Tomas, I'm so glad we could do this. I really want to hear these poems. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. We can start just about anywhere you'd like to. I could tell you a couple of things that jumped out at me. I do, I do that. White face is extremely interesting. The things that can happen with a traffic stop. Yeah. And 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 uh, a poem with the voice of duct tape. Yeah, definitely you get high originality points for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just we can start right there, you know. Okay. And then go wherever you want to go. They jumped out of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, could I read White Face? That would that be if okay? You want to, sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You have any you have any uh, background on that one you want to? Yeah. Um, the. Uh, the sort of roots of the poem came from, I don't know if you recall, I can't remember what year this was, but this was quite a few years back. Uh, there's even an, a Wikipedia page about it. Uh, there was that one summer where um, it seemed like every few days you would hear a report on the news about uh, someone dressed up as a clown uh, menacing people, like, uh, you know, near a playground or uh, like uh, at the edge of some woods or near an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was, it seemed like it was all over the country. Well, what occurred to me was, was this, I bet you, I, I told a friend, I said, I bet you not a single one of those people, those clown people will be arrested, much less uh, get shot, you know, by the police. Yeah. While, uh, you know, on the way on the other end of the spectrum, you just have folks, you know, uh, you know, yeah. people of color just going about their, their lives. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, they leave the house to go run an errand and they don't make it home. Uh, you know, much less, you know, you know, dressing up as a clown and, and actually trying to scare people. And it yeah. was just, it just seemed to me like a, a perfect sort of microcosm of, of where we are, you know, in this country. And, um, 
so so that was uh, that's one of the roots of of, uh, of the poem. White face. We drove five miles under the speed limit. We kept the nose of our cars out of crosswalks. We signaled early. In the trunk, the spare was full of air. We made sure we had gas. Running out of gas left a lot to chance. Don't get stranded, our mothers had always said, in the wrong neighborhood or on the highway or alone or with our friends. Keep both hands on the wheel. Is your registration up to date? Did you replace the bald tire? It wobbles. You know who wobbles? Drunks. We nod and nod. Nodding doesn't comfort our mothers. Not like in the 70s and 80s. We were still children then. We hadn't learned to lie yet. At least not well. Breaking curfew was still in the future. Our mothers wanted us safe. They still believed this was possible back then. They nod and we nod. Our two heads swing back and forth like a Newton's cradle. You know the toy, if not the name. It often sits on the desk of people who give orders. Five suspended spheres are lined up. They are made of steel. Lift one and they will click and clack forever. You can see it now, can't you? This toy that proves momentum and energy are not lost. Sometimes only two spheres are used. But our heads are not made of steel. They are made of stardust. Stardust is surprisingly delicate. It is delicate like a trapeze. Our heads swing high in the dark. Our country is a circus tent. The trapeze has always been the last act of the night. This is why we nod and nod because we are at the end of something. From down below, when the light catches our heads, they shine. They shine like disco balls. They shine like something sharp, like a thing that could light your way, that could make your heart race, that could free you. We saw a trapeze act on TV once. Two people passed a ball to each other. It was shaped like the earth. If the earth were made of glitter, we wanted a ball like that. So we collected pounds and pounds of empty cans to sell. All summer, Coke, Mountain Dew, Pepsi, Big Red, Crush, Miller Lite and Coors too. Not unlike the ones on the shoulder now where we have been pulled over because of a phone call, because a dog crossed the road, because a diaper needed to be changed because the route to the dentist was under construction. We are big, we are small, our clothes are plain, we are wearing pants, we are wearing a dress, a shirt with sleeves, a shirt with no sleeves. The bullet leaves its jacket on the road. The speedometer squats at zero. Red and blue lights dance in the mirror. What if next time we wore a doctor's coat? hung a stethoscope around our necks. What if next time we wore our mother's camouflage? We could be the color of sand and rocks. What if next time we wore a black suit and shiny black shoes, a white priest collar around our throats? When you say, show me your hands, get on the ground. We could say, 
Hail Mary, full of grace. What if next time we paint our faces white, like a happy clown? Say we were on our way to wave at kids with our machetes from the edge of the woods, near a playground, near a house, near a school. This person has the right to remain breathing. Anything they say can and will be used against them in a court of law. They have the right to an attorney. If they cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for them. Do you understand the rights I have just read to you? With these rights in mind, do you wish to speak to us? Whoa, the poem is chilling. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I, um, as I was writing it, I, I kept the question I kept ans asking myself, which was not just a poetic question, but also, um, you know, a life question, survival question, which is, um, you know, uh, what could we wear? What, what could we wear that would grant us a conversation, right, before bullets start flying? Yeah. Um, and uh, the sand and the rocks, I thought, well, you know, if someone was dressed in uh, their military uniform. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I actually saw a, a report uh, a few months ago. Uh, there was uh, in San Antonio, someone was at a gas station in their military uniform and uh, they got harassed like they got harassed by the cops and um, oh. they didn't get shot thank god but um, uh, so then I thought well you know what if you know we were dressed as as like a doctor or a priest <laughs> like you know what like what 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 will it take what will it take yeah. um, uh, and this is going to sound strange but what will it take to make the police less afraid you know uh, I think some of them sure it's it's fear you know, irrational fear that's, that's driving their actions. But yeah, it's just, yeah, I just don't know, you know. So, so it ends up the answer is white face. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. what if we paint our faces white, literally, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you know, maybe they'll be like, well, what's, what's, what's this clown? <laughs> what's this clown up to literally, you know, yeah. and maybe that'll, yeah, give us, give us a pass, you know, to, to, to life. Is that a poem that um, you came back to since it's kind of a list? I'm wondering if you came back and added things and whatever. Yeah. Came uh, one shot. No. Uh, yeah. I worked on it for a while and, um, and, and it grew, it grew and grew. And um, uh, one of the ways in which it grew was um, by like uh, through the sentence fragments that are in the poem. Uh, mm -hmm. I know people couldn't hear it, but like, for example, when I say near a playground, near a house, near a school, uh, from the edge of the woods, like each one of those is a different numbered line. Um, you know, I could have put those all on one line, you know, all made them part of one grammatically correct sentence, but I was trying to um, slow down time, mm -hmm. you know, slow down time in the poem in, in the way that time feels like it slows when you see those flashing lights behind you and you're like, oh no. And, and, you know, you had, your day was going in one direction and then you hear the siren and you see the flashing lights, and you pull over and then it's, it's, it's almost like you enter a different time. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to, trying to do that, you know, trying to slow it down for the reader. Well, that works. The numbering of course adds to that. Yeah. So folks who can't see the poem, each line is numbered. There are about a hundred numbered lines. Yeah. I think so. It's a, yeah, that definitely works. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, what, what would you like to read now? Well, you mentioned duct tape. Um, you know, that's, um, 
Uh, it's one of my favorite poems uh, in the book. And it's, it might be the oldest poem in the book. I was uh, in 2010, I was taking a workshop with the poet Kamiko Han at the uh, Fine Arts Work Center. And um, she gave us this uh, in-class assignment. And the assignment was to, if I remember correctly, was to choose uh, any object in the room and write a persona poem in the voice of that, that object. And I had about the first third. Uh, so I drafted the poem and I saw the roll of duct tape and I drafted the poem. And um, uh, I had written what was about the first third of the poem. And I knew that something, something wasn't quite right, that it wasn't done yet. And I returned to the poem for uh, about seven years. So between 2010 and 2017, I kept returning to the poem, trying to uh, figure out what was going on with it. And then it wasn't until 2017 when I, uh, the light bulb went off and I was like, oh, I know exactly, I know exactly what this poem needs. And once that moment happened, uh, I was able to finish it um, within about a week or so, but um, uh, it, it grew, it, it, got, it got longer. Um, but it was one of those things where, um, I, I think I just, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to, to, to finish it. Like the poem's ambition outstripped my skill hmm. when I drafted it in 2010, you know, and, uh, I just didn't have the chops, uh, to one, see what the poem needed, but then two, to also be able to execute, you know, execute that, um, uh, but I loved the concept of, you know, what would a roll of duct tape say? Um, and um, I, sh I shopped it around for about four years and um, uh, no, no one wanted it. Everyone would take all the other, they would take the other poems that were in the group. And that one always came back with its tail between its legs. And I kept thinking like, why, why does, is it too strange? <laughs> you know, uh, but finally it, it got picked up by a Greensboro Review. Uh, and it's going to come out in their fall issue this year, and um, I think it has a good home. But I'd I'd love to love to read it, and um, and chat about it. Duct tape. One night I thought, if only I were thin and petite as cellophane, they might welcome me in heaven. Light doesn't pass through my thick body, and no one ever said I was the life of the party. Will the saint at the door find my name on his clipboard? Things fall apart even in heaven, don't they? Who better to help the angels than me, if they truly exist, when their feathers drop from flying too little? I never get these thoughts in the daytime. The whisper of a new sun telling the swallows to sing fills me with hope. Today, a woman took five inches of my life just as the street lamps flicked on and the dogs in the neighborhood yawned. Tomorrow, the two of us will hold together a sign that says, the end is near. She wants what we all want. She sobs softly. When I tear, no one looks for an elephant in the room. I am the grand toad of grief when I split open. I miss the simple life. Kissing someone's thighs while they walk down the street in their torn blue jeans. Or hugging the hips of a hose without any worry, I wouldn't be hugged back. She stares out the double window she never opens anymore. The sun is low and turning into an orange ghost. Ten years ago next week, 
we met when she moved in with a man she would marry and divorce. I was in his toolbox, but didn't stay there. She let me sleep next to the glue stick and her grandmother's pipe in a kitchen drawer. You could say I was like the child they never had. All these years later, and I'm still useful. Just yesterday, she made me sing my swampy song strip after long strip. When she was done, I covered the ostrich leather journal that had been her favorite wedding gift. The pages were blue like a robin's egg, but the skin was butterscotch. When her back hurt, she sat on a pillow and wrote nothing I could read, mumbling each sentence until she sounded like the sea or the leaves of a tall tree before a storm. I'd wanted to listen to her, but kept getting distracted by the bumps. Quill follicles, I think, is what she had called them. I was so used to being flat. Now I felt like a coat of armor for the only bird to ever learn that running could be flying. All right. Now, so before you read this, you said that um, you spent all this time trying to find what the poem needed. Yeah. Once you found it, can you articulate that? Like what, what it needed and what happened there? Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was actually, um, uh, when I realized what, what it needed, uh, I thought back to um, some advice that um, my friend and mentor, uh, Philip Levine, had given me many, many years ago um, when I was uh, still a student. I was just graduating with my MFA, and um, he had been an outside reader for, of my thesis. And about three quarters of the way into the thesis, there's a poem where uh, the speaker sees a neighbor come out to wash his car or something like that. And um, Levine wrote something like, um, imagine my shock when an actual, like with an, when another person actually showed up in one of your poems. And he said, uh, it wasn't until this moment that I realized that um, uh, your poems didn't have anyone else in them. You know, it was just, it was just you. And um, so the advice he gave me was to always try to make room for uh, the world, you know, uh, to not just write in this, you know, uh, write from, you know, uh, this dark, solitary corner uh, and to let, you know, um, let the world in uh, all the, all the good and bad that that, you know, that comes with that. Sure. So uh, what I realized then, um, uh, what I realized with the duct tape poem was that uh, it needed a human, it needed, it needed company, you know, um, because without, um, without someone to actually, you know, pull the strips or to move it around, then it's just, you know, it's, yeah. it's not, nothing's really happening. And uh, the other lesson that he always gave me was about uh, dramatizing, about how to dramatize a poem, you know, how to, um, uh, how to create, you know, uh, dramatic tension, which is, you know, fiction writers talk about this all the time, you know, they're, they're trained in this. Yeah. And so once I had an owner for the duct tape, uh, then my imagination just kind of like took off. It's like, okay, well, who is she? Where is she from? How did she get, you know, how did she get the, the tape? Where does she live now? Um, um, what is their relationship? And so answering all of those questions, you know, the, the poem just kind of, um, kind of, kind of took off. Well, this, I find that really interesting. Uh, can you tell me something about the dramatic tension in the poem? I think people will really like to hear that. Yeah. So like, for example, um, like, uh, okay. So like when, uh, he 
or I say he, it, right, the duct tape, when the duct tape says, tomorrow the two of us will hold together a sign that says the end is near, right? And if you know that it's duct tape speaking, then it's like, well, okay, how's it holding it together, right? It's holding it together because it's being used, right, to make this, to make this sign. But uh, what's, uh, where the tension comes from in the poem is that the duct tape is a uh, passive witness to uh, in, in this woman's life. You know, it, it plays a, a passive role in this woman's life. Um, it, uh, you know, can be used uh, to, to help her in, the, in this way, like, you know, to hold a sign, to cover her journal. Um, it hears her, it hears her when, um, you know, um, she's thinking aloud to herself, um, but it, it, it's, not, uh, it's not an active participant, you know, and uh, in a way that's, uh, that kind of mirrors my childhood. I was, um, uh, my father was a drug addict and um, uh, my mom, I mean, all her life, she was clean as a whistle, but um, whenever he had withdrawals or we had to take him to the hospital, um, you know, like we were the ones who did that. And um, as a kid, I felt really powerless. You know, I re felt really powerless. Like I couldn't um, I couldn't speak to what he was going through. Um, uh, you know, all I understood was that, you know, he was in pain, you know, and he was suffering and, um, but I heard, and I saw everything, you know, and I was, and I was there to help. I wanted to be there to help. So in a way, like the poem speaks, you know, speaks to that, to this, uh, being useful, uh, without really being, um, you know, having any sort of agency over how, you know, how you're used. That's my, my partner sneaking behind me. I think that whole idea is really interesting. The dramatic tension in the poem. Yeah. Well, basically it has to have a little bit of a narrative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I was super surprised at, at where, um, like where it ended, you know, the, with, uh, with the ostrich, you know, the ostrich and um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's funny. Even though the, as, you know, as a as an object, as a character in this poem, the duct tape uh, doesn't have a whole lot of power, doesn't have a whole lot of agency. Um, it it does because it's a fly in the wall. It does have a lot of knowledge. You know, so it it let yeah. so in a way it was it was fun to imagine like okay, so what can I know that the only the duct tape would know. You know that only the duct tape would know, yeah. and um, so that was fun. You know that was that was that was a lot of fun to write. Well, I'm glad, glad we got into that because all all those hidden things were there, like your idea yeah. of narrative and intention and all that sort of thing. I haven't heard anybody talk about that about something. Be sure to put in your poem. You know, tension. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah, you know, I always always tell my students, um, in particular when we're doing like an intro workshop, um, and um, you know, I ask the sort of basic questions that are probably asked in fiction workshops, you know, the who, what, when, where, how, and, um, you know, falling action, all those sorts of things. And, uh, and whenever they give me puzzled looks like, you know, as if to say, hey, this is poetry, you know, what's, what's with all this, what's with all this stuff? Um, uh, I always, much to my delight, and I'm sure it shows on my face, I always, much to my delight, I remind them how before there were novels, there were epic poems you know, um, that, that had all of these, you know, all of these uh, narrative structures and narrative elements. Um, you know, we poets, we use them first. 
and uh, over time, uh, you know, those got ceded to fiction writers. And I told them, however, uh, if you take the whole sort of like history of literature, um, poetry has had narrative in it a lot longer than it hasn't, you know, yeah. and um, so why shouldn't we, why shouldn't we use those, those tools? You know, they were, they were ours first, you know. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's really good. This is good poetic philosophizing. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're seriously, welcome. Seriously, seriously. <laughs> okay, well, we've got time for one more. So, okay. So uh, pull something out. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Whatever um, you like. You know, I'd like to read uh, this poem, uh, Tried and Untrue, since, um, since I mentioned uh, Phil Levine. Uh, he gets uh, he gets a mention in this poem. Great. Tried and untrue. I lost a lake once. It had no name. No fish ever swam in its waters. Starbursts of lilies never once bloomed there. Along the banks, pine after pine rose as high as houses, but no bird ever made a home in those branches. The sun never shone on my lake. I did have a moon in darkness too, but I never made time for stars. I used to make a game of sitting on the bottom. When I grew bored of this, I hung in the sky like a bird with no wings or a cloud with no wind. My lake was made of words, you see. I was a young man trying to make beauty out of loneliness as young men like to do. When my friend Phil read my lake and said, ah, it's your old tried and untrue lake again. Get a new lake. I laughed like someone with nothing to lose for the first time in years. 71% of the earth is covered in water and more than half of your body is an ocean. Countless species become extinct every day and countless more are discovered. Both return to and arrive from a place beyond our knowing where there are no lakes for the lonely. Pain is the anchor on a ship with no sails, but in this here and now, this here of cookouts and frisbees, rowboats and tackle boxes, every fish loves the fly more than the shadow of the fly. Yeah, one of the other things that uh, Levine had told me was uh, he noticed that I kept writing about these lakes, and uh, and it was never really a specific lake. It was it was it was like a poetry lake you know, and, um, uh, and he eventually like grew tired of it. It was like, all right, look, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, right. Uh, 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 not just enough lakes, but like enough with these pretend lakes, you know, like if you're going to write about, uh, about a lake, you know, make it, make it real, or at least make it real on the page. You know, I was, um, I was just kind of operating in the, um, you know, the world of symbols, you know, and not really, um, uh, yeah, operating in the world of the real. So, so the poem is, is, is about that, um, you know, about my trying to move out from doing what I think a lot of young male poets do, which is write the, um, uh, the young man alone poem, you know, uh, at least when we're starting out, you know, it, it, for some reason, it feels like that's just our default. Um, and that speaks to that thing he said about, you know, letting, making room in your work for the world and, and other, you know, and other people. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that's another one. That's good. That's another, that's the things you've just said, I think would mean that 
folks would benefit from going back and listening to that poem again. Yeah. I get yeah. that feeling when we're doing this. I get that feeling once in a while. Yeah. More so, you know, it's one advantage we have. People right. can't see you and you miss something that way, but you can go back and listen again. Right. And the yeah. kind of things you just said, they, you know, bring up some things that you might yeah. catch the first time. So yeah. uh, this this has been really good. The uh, your, your after talk on the poems is really uh, helpful and elaborative and informative and interesting. Thank you. So, Thank you. Anyway, well, there you go. I guess we've uh, done it. And All right. um, so, folks, All right. you're listening to Poetry Spoken here. I am your host, Charlie Rossiter. Our guest today, all the way from the southern part of Texas, is Tomas Morin. And he teaches at Rice University as well as the Vermont College of Fine Arts just up the road. So, be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mondley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.